Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. All right, Colin, we had a great episode last week where you went through your experiences as a cadet in ROTC, and this week is where you're going to talk about what it's like to now go back to jail as an instructor <laughs> this time. In some ways, it, it does feel like that, but in other ways... As I'll explain over the course of the episode, Air Force ROTC is one of the most liberating assignments you can ever find yourself in. Okay, that's fair. But, you know, like I, I think I may have mentioned this or not, but for me, it was definitely like going back to jail, except this time I was a prison guard instead <laughs> of one of the inmates. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to talk about my experience getting to and being an instructor at at Air Force ROTC, but I think the first thing we need to address, because I don't think we talked about it in your deep dive into OTS, is how you actually get assigned to Air Force ROTC or OTS. And I think this process is reflective of how really any assignment works, especially as something that is considered a special duty, like being an instructor is going to follow this process that we're going to outline. And we've got a link to a Facebook Live video from AFPC that we'll put up in the show notes so that you can go and get the nitty-gritty details from the source. Yeah, no, we, we didn't cover that, and I think it's good. We will have to caveat this. This process has totally changed in the very recent past, very different from how you and I were selected. I'm, I know we'll talk about yours. so. For me, it just came. I was actually at Maxwell Air Force Base going to squadron officer school, the course that they want 100% of all Air Force captains to attend. When I got my assignment, went into the system, checked my email, there it was. That's how it had been in the past for OTS instruction and a lot of these other duties, but that's all changed. So the first thing you need to do if this is something you want to do now that it's a competitively selected position is you need to start talking to your leadership because they're going to have to endorse you. And if your leadership doesn't know this is something you want to do, that may be hard to get. So you got to start talking to people early and often if this is something you're interested in. Yeah, d definitely. Not only will you need their endorsement, but they should be able to help you think through the timing of your application to get one of these assignments as an instructor or a recruiter. And timing is important so that you can remain promotable over the course of your time as an instructor, as well as continuing to develop as an officer in the Air Force. Yeah, we talked about the timing a lot in our uh, How Officers Are Promoted episode. If you have any more questions about that, we recommend checking that out. But yes, timing is a big deal. So the next thing is you're going to want to go into my vector, which is the system on the Air Force portal that is becoming how assignments are given, how notifications are made, and 
you're going to have to know when that all happens. So you got to start paying attention to openings and windows and things of that nature. Yeah. And within my vector, there will be a field where you can provide comments specific to your preference about what you'd like to do, either outlining that you want to go to your alma mater as an Air Force RTC instructor, or you want to go be a recruiter in such and such a city, or maybe you want to go to OTS or teach at SOS. Those comments need to be reflected in my vector so that the central selection board, which we'll talk about in in a little bit, knows where it is that you would like to go. But a big caveat on this one as well is that even if you put in those comments, volunteering for one type of instructor or recruiter duty means that you are volunteering for all of them. So even if you apply for or put in comments for Air Force ROTC, don't be surprised if the Air Force needs you to be an OTS instructor. Exactly. And that's all outlined in the announcement for this window, but it's something we really wanted to foot stomp. If you don't want to go to some of these other locations and do some of these other jobs, maybe you need to consider the overall intent of applying. So after you put in your comments, your senior rater will also have to endorse you. Again, pretty normal with this type of competitive application process. And once your application is complete, you have your commander's endorsement, you filled out your preferences, you have your senior rater endorsement, your application will then be reviewed by a central selection board at AFPC. And through that board, AFPC will receive a list of candidates. Now, these are candidates, not people that are guaranteed to be assigned as instructors to be matched to an assignment somewhere as an instructor or as a recruiter. Yep. After the candidates are posted, then the individual units who are actually hiring will place bids to kind of tell AFPC who they think are most qualified to meet their needs. And after that, AFPC and the CSB will decide who gets matched to what. And then assignments roll out. Yeah. And and those assignments will then be published just the same way as they usually are. But because this is a, a competitive board, Don't be surprised if the results get pushed out to commanders so that they can make the notifications themselves. Colin, do you remember how many applicants for how many positions happened in the last go-round? I know there were significantly more applicants than there were positions. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was somewhere in the order of about 300 positions available in Air Force ROTC and 1,500 applications for that. Which is great, right? This is a great problem to have where before it was doing whatever they could to find enough bodies to fill these positions. Now they're having the best of the best compete, which is something that we're huge fans of, but just something to be aware of, right? Put it in the calculus. Make sure you communicate that with those who are involved in you and your life and your career. Uh, This is no longer a, if you apply, you will get it, which again, I think is the Air Force will be better for. Yep, Absolutely. We're just ecstatic to see that the Air Force is moving in a direction where it's going to value this type of assignment, these types of positions that will hopefully bring people into instruction and recruiting that truly want to be there and are more qualified than even you and I have been and definitely more than the instructors of the past who 
never truly wanted to be there in the first place. So Colin, we've already said that this is different than how you and I were selected. How did it happen for you? How did you become a ROTC instructor? Yeah, my experience is nothing like we just outlined. In fact, it couldn't be more different. So the way things worked out for me is that I had already left active duty. I was in the IRR, which means Individual Ready Reserve, and I was in a non-drill, non-participating status. So essentially what that means is I still had my commission, but I wasn't attached to a unit. I wasn't participating in the Air Force in any official way. I did get called up for one muster before I became an ROTC instructor. That was an interesting experience, showing up to the base, full beard, hair down to my shoulders. It was an exciting time. Seriously? Who who musters the IRR? I think they have to do it on at least a annual, if not every other year basis so that they can just keep tabs on where people are. And really what it was for is to push various different programs available to to reservists for them to go to school or to come back on active duty or retrain or whatever. That's really what, what it was all about. Wow, that's a first start for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so I had actually applied for Air Force RTC while I was still on active duty, but I couldn't get a release from my career field manager. This is something we didn't mention previously, but in the old way of doing things, in order to get assigned to Air Force ROTC, it, like if you wanted to go there, you had to ask permission from your career field manager and your assignments officer to let you out of your career field so that you could go do the instructor duty. That's pretty much the case for almost anything outside your tribe, and it's still the case. Right. Just the way that things are set up now, the career field managers as a whole have all agreed that if someone gets selected by the central selection board, that they will usually release them from the career field to go fill this competitive position. I think Big Blue Air Force said, you will. Yes. Uh, we'll, yes. We'll, it's more complicated than that, but we'll leave it right there. Yeah, that's fair. So anyway, I had applied for Air Force ROTC while on active duty and could not get released from my career field. And so, like I was saying, I separated from active duty and went into the IRR. But because of the previous climate, the Air Force was struggling to fill a lot of these instructor positions within Air Force ROTC. So at that time, they offered what is known as VLPAD or Voluntary limited period of active duty tours to guard and reserve officers to fill Air Force ROTC, OTS, and other instructor duties. Yeah, I was at OTS during this time, and that's where the uh, headquarters of Air Force ROTC is, is at Maxwell. And I can tell you the group commander there who was in charge of Afrotsi was having a heck of a time getting enough instructors. I mean, it was a serious, serious deficit and we were feeling the same pressures that OTS couldn't get enough instructors so it was a pretty heady time and we were really trying to think outside the 
the container to get some folks to come and be instructors. It was a pretty tough time. Yeah. So across Air Force ROTC, uh, maybe you know the numbers for OTS, but the average manning at the different detachments was about 60%, but there were some detachments that were only 30% manned, meaning at a detachment where there's supposed to be three officers, three instructors, there was only one. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty rough. We weren't that bad, but we were certainly not healthy. We needed almost 20 more people. So the Air Force put this VLPAD program together. It was offered the first time in 2015. I applied in 2016 and was actually contacted by VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, to be an instructor there. But literally three days before that offer was made, I accepted a position at Utah Valley University to be an academic advisor. So I could have gone to VMI, but I felt that I should take this advisor position. Plus it enabled me to keep my family here in Utah, didn't have to move them. So I took that advisor position and and worked there for about eight months before I applied for VLPAD again. But at this time, one of the instructor positions at BYU and UVU where I was already working came open. So I contacted the detachment commander directly and told him that I would love to work for him. And he said, okay. And it was that easy. That's not going to be the normal from here on out. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's just so crazy to me just looking back on things that I couldn't get into Air Force ROTC while I was on active duty. I had to leave the Air Force I had to separate, go into the IRR, get a civilian position within higher education before I could finagle my way, you know, backdoor deal sort of thing into Air Force RTC. So that's how I got to where I am today. Yeah, it's not going to be that way moving forward. And I share this because we've talked before about how you get to define what success looks like for you. And sometimes in the pursuit of that success, you may need to go a different direction than what is considered quote unquote normal, right? Yeah. Well, what is normal anyway, right? I know that there's supposed to be a path, but I know no one who's ever followed the path. It's like, it doesn't exist. Everyone's doing their own thing anyway. So yeah, never been a big fan of quote the path. Yeah. So... I want to talk here about why I wanted so badly to be an instructor at Air Force ROTC in the first place. I mean, it took me three times in order to finally get accepted and become an Air Force ROTC instructor. The first one was my passion was within higher education. Whether I stayed in the Air Force for a long time and retired or just did this one assignment and then was done again. I wanted to stay working in academia. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to have a faculty position within higher education. I wanted to use the experience that I had already gained while working in higher education as an an advisor, use the information I gained through working on my PhD. I wanted to use all of this toward a future career in academia. Now, this has changed a little bit over the the time that I've been in ROTC, and I'll get into that another time. But 
I saw this as a stepping stone uh, that would provide me good experience and three years of being an assistant professor at a university that would set me up well for a future career in academia. In addition to that, like I said, I had been in the IRR and I spent about 20 months in the IRR in a non-drill, non-participating status, hence the beard and the long hair. But during that time, I realized that I really missed being with my tribe. I missed wearing the uniform. I missed being around airmen. I missed being with people who understood who I was and where I was coming from. It's not that I didn't find friends or people that I could connect with outside of the military, but I just really missed my brothers and sisters at arms. And unless you've been in that position where you've been out and and away from the military before, even with all of its quirks and the things that are sometimes terrible about being in the military, it's hard for you to understand. So just know that I missed being with all of you, especially people like you, Reed, that made the Air Force what it is for me. Oh, that's very kind. And I, I want to do a little bit of a preview. I know that we have an interview that we're going to be publishing coming up here in the future about someone else who's gotten out. Is this something you're going to talk about, the adjustment to getting out and getting away from other airmen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a topic we haven't really addressed yet. The the transition from being an officer in the Air Force to being a civilian outside of the military. Definitely a really important topic because the the transition is fraught with peril, as it were. Well, and not only that, no matter how successful you are in the military, at some point, your service will end. And whether that's in four years or 40, it's still going to come for everybody. So it might be a good idea to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. But my experience was that after I had already transitioned out, now I'm trying to find a way, and I did find a way, to transition back in. And that will certainly be something that we need to talk about as well. The last and probably the most important reason that I wanted to be an instructor in Air Force ROTC is I wanted to prepare cadets to be officers. I didn't feel like I was all that prepared. I don't know if you remember me at ASBC Reed. You were one of the first people to meet me on active duty. And I felt completely overwhelmed. Like I did not know up from down, right from left, and how to navigate the active duty thing. I don't recall that. I don't remember feeling, boy, this guy has no idea. I don't think any of us had any idea. <laughs> At least that was my overwhelming sense of ASBC, except for the priors. They knew what was going on, but everybody else, we were just totally new, had no idea what was going on. That's true. That is true. Even so, I didn't feel prepared. And this was largely my own fault because I didn't take Air Force RTC as seriously as I think I should have. And so I wanted to be in a position where I could encourage cadets to be better than I was. I didn't feel like my cadre were as engaged as they should have been as well. Again, this was 10 years ago, deep in the previous climate where ROTC was not a valued officer position. And so that's part of it. But really, I wanted to be 
better for my cadets than I was as a cadet and my instructors were for me. So I started at Air Force ROTC Detachment 855 in July of 2017. One of the first things that I had to do as an instructor, and same thing is true for all instructors that come to ROTC, is that they will have to attend an initial training at Maxwell before they're allowed to teach in the classroom. And all officers in Air Force ROTC are instructors. If there is going to be a semester where you're not going to teach, you actually have to get a waiver from the region approving you to not teach that one semester. I should throw in here that the same instructors that gave you a huge portion of your instructor qualification training were the same instructors we had to give us our qualification training there at OTS. Yeah. And you also mentioned in your deep dive read that there were formal inspections. There was kind of like a initial qualifications training and then a fully mission qualified level that you had to attain. That doesn't really exist in Air Force ROTC. You just kind of go to this one training and you come back and you're considered fully mission qualified. Obviously, that's not exactly true. There's a lot of on-the-job training, OJT, that has to happen along the way before you truly feel competent. Plus, the formal inspections and the no-notice inspections that you all would have don't happen nearly as often in Air Force ROTC due to the constraints of visiting 145 detachments across the nation. And that kind of hits on what it's like being in Air Force ROTC in general. It's just that we're kind of like out there. We're just somewhere out there geographically separated from the base and from headquarters. We're just out there on our own. And this is both a great and a truly terrible thing. So I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, what are these positives? What are these negatives about being in a geographically separated unit as an Air Force ROTC instructor? So one of the main positives that comes from this type of environment is that we get to develop solutions that work for us specifically at that university in that geographic area and demographic rather than having to receive top-down direction from headquarters that says thou shalt operate your program in this specific way. We do receive guidance but for the most part we get to develop solutions that work for us. Additionally this also allows us to focus down the chain toward our cadets rather than trying to appease up the chain because of the geographical distance and we're kind of like out of sight out of mind with regards to the base and higher headquarters yes they are aware of us yes they stay in contact but for the most part like i said we're just out there doing our thing another advantage of being in a gsu is that you get to become very close with your colleagues now, I know, Reed, you described in OTS being in that cube farm with your fellow instructors, and it was because of that working environment, they really became your family. You became closer with them than anybody else. But just imagine that on a much smaller scale and 
you don't have anywhere else you can go. Like these are the people that you work with day in and day out. And if somebody has to go on leave or get sick or anything like that, they're the ones that are there to cover for you or vice versa. Yeah. It seems like it's almost kind of what happens when you're overseas or when you're deployed, you're just a little bit tighter because there's less infrastructure around you and you kind of have to depend on each other a little more. Is that kind of the, I mean, you've deployed a couple of times, so you can relate to that a little bit. Yeah, it, it's similar. Definitely my second deployment where I wasn't at such a built-up base. I was in Jordan on a postage stamp of a base as opposed to being deployed to Al-Udeed, which has been around for 30 years. Got it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then this doesn't really have a whole lot to do with being an instructor, but I have to talk about TRICARE Prime Remote. It is seriously the best thing. So have you ever heard of TRICARE Prime Remote, Reed? Do you know what that is? I haven't. No, I don't know what it is. Okay, so you know TRICARE Prime? Yep. That is the medical plan that the vast majority of active duty military personnel are enrolled in, as well as their families, that says you don't pay any sort of monthly premium and you have essentially unlimited access to medical support so long as it's at a medical treatment facility or MTF. Yep. So that's TRICARE Prime. TRICARE Prime Remote says that because you are geographically separated from the base, you are so many miles, I think it's 50 away from the closest base, you still get all the same benefits of being on TRICARE Prime, but because you're so far away, you get all your medical out in the civilian system. So, so long as they take TRICARE, we get to choose our own doctors, our own dentists, anywhere that we feel is best for our family, that's where we get to go. And like being on a commercial medical plan, but without having to pay the monthly premium or anything like that. It is amazing. Yeah, that does sound pretty nice. It's really amazing for me because I have a son with type 1 diabetes and we're in the medical system a lot. And it's just really nice to not have to deal with the MTF, but are able to be out on the, the civilian system. Now, I think I should talk about some of the negatives of being out there on our own. Because you're so far away from the base, out of sight, out of mind, it is easy to feel forgotten by your host base. I know that there are some detachments that are literally like four or five hours away from the closest Air Force base. And that makes it really difficult to get support from the military personnel section or the MPS or the communication squadron if you've got a VPN laptop or something along those lines. And it makes you feel like you're out of the loop of what's going on in the Air Force. Do you have to go to an Air Force installation to take your annual PFA? Thankfully, no. All instructors are physical training leaders or PTL qualified, and so we're able to give our own fitness assessments just like we run it for the cadets as well. So, no, we don't have to go all the way there, but kind of like I said, if... Even if I'm on Trekker Prime Remote, but I have to go to a base to turn in records or be seen by a flight doc or a specialist of some kind, I have to drive the hour or four or five hours, depending on how far away the base is, in order to get that support. 
Yeah, and I'm sure that's the same for even like a small little thing like say you lose your cover, your headgear, you've got to go get one. Where for me, that's you know a quick little 15-minute drive out and back, knock it out. It's not quite so simple for you guys. Yeah, uniforms are an interesting challenge and hopefully something that is going to change from what it is where there's a single place where you can get your uniform to maybe a mail order system. We'll see if that comes out in over the next few years or so. Another thing about being out there is it because you're so far away, it is hard to be present for and known by senior leadership. We've talked about this in previous episodes about the importance of being known by your leaders. Well, when your senior raider is all the way down at Maxwell and here I am in Utah, I'm going to get next to zero FaceTime with that senior leader. And so that can, for better or for worse, it can make it difficult to get the stratifications that are needed to get like the next assignments that you're looking for. I mean, there are ways to distinguish yourself, but the actual like face-to-face time that you would get from being on a base doesn't exist with Air Force ROTC. Not to mention you lose out on a lot of really good mentoring and mentorship uh, opportunities, whether that's in a in-person commander's call, you know, in a more formal setting or proverbial water cooler talk where you're walking by them in the hall or catch them in the elevator and they get 20 seconds to drop some knowledge bombs on you. I mean, that kind of stuff's harder when you're out by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we try to still participate in like the web-based commander's calls, those kinds of things, but it's just not the same, like you're saying. On the flip side of being very close with your colleagues because you're in that really tight-knit community and you don't have anybody else to go to, it can make it really difficult to escape a crappy work environment, either because you've got toxic leadership from the commander or you just have that coworker that you just can't get along with. There's no place else for you to go. So it can be difficult in that regard as well. And then this is just something that I know is going to scratch the itch of every ROTC instructor out there that being off of the dot mill and having to use Outlook webmail is absolutely the worst thing ever. Yeah, for those in the audience who don't have context, when you're on a military installation, you're actually on military networks. Your internet for us in the Air Force comes from AFNET. And basically when you log into an unclassified system and you click the little Outlook icon, your email pulls up. It's great. But when you are not on the network, you have to use a series of tunnels. And yeah, I'm in the same boat, Colin. I'm on an army fort. And that is not AFNET. So I have to use Outlook Webmail. And it is not my friend. Yeah. It's just such a source of pain and frustration when we're trying to get information from headquarters that is on AFNET. And so they're using their dot mil web addresses and we can't access all of the information they're trying to send us we do the vast majority of our communications on an unclass university system not that rotc deals with any sort of secret or higher classified information we we might get to fouo on occasion or just dealing with pii personally identifying information but yeah 
having to use Outlook webmail to stay in touch with higher headquarters or other military personnel is just awful. All right. So some of those pros and cons out of the way, you're now a ROTC instructor, you show up. What did that feel like? What did they make you do? How did that all begin for you? So like I said, I went to the initial qualification course, came back and I was assigned by my detachment commander to be the recruiting officer. This was an excellent position for me because I was able to leverage my relationships at Utah Valley University where I, I had just been working to make some serious headway on the recruiting front for the students over there. I, mean, I was able to do the same for BYU, but I definitely made a much bigger contribution to the recruiting effort at UVU. So in addition to that, being the recruiting officer to start got me into the regulations because I wanted to make sure I was giving the exact right information to the students that were wanting to join our program. So I became very familiar with the regs and policy about who can join Air Force RTC under what circumstance. And a lot of that I touched on in episode three, where I talked about how to become an officer through Air Force ROTC. It's not just anybody. And it's important that you as a recruiting officer and any cadet that is wanting to come into the program be aware of what governs who can join the program under, under what circumstances. I got hundreds, if not thousands of reps explaining how Air Force ROTC works to students, to their parents, to university officials, and became very comfortable with the process of Air Force ROTC and also why someone should or should not consider joining the program. Air Force ROTC is not for everybody, certainly, especially if they don't have enough time to complete the program. So being a recruiting officer helped me to better understand how all of that works. And I became extremely comfortable with talking to people in from all different backgrounds or positions about how the program works. I, I had to talk with sophomores in high school, all the way up to university deans and vice presidents. So it was an excellent place for me to start out to become kind of an expert on how ROTC works. After my first year in Air Force ROTC, my commander actually wanted me to be the operations flight commander, which I'll describe next. But I convinced him that it would be good for our program to let me be a recruiting officer for an additional year. Now, this was a big deal for me. I've talked about this previously, how officers get moved from position to position to position on a very frequent basis. And this was the first time in my career where I was able to become proficient in my job and then really be able to excel in it because I knew what I was doing and I was able to finally like fire on all cylinders in that one specific position. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Now, I don't know that that's going to be the case for others that join ROTC. It might be. And I'll explain a little bit 
later on why that might be the case. But for me, it was a huge thing to be able to have that second year as a recruiting officer. During my time as the recruiting officer in my first year, I was also the instructor for the AS100s or the, the freshmen, the first year cadets in the program. It made sense for me to be that instructor because I not only got them in the door as the recruiting officer, but then I was that familiar face for them as their instructor. And let me talk about what it means to be an instructor. So as an instructor for a specific AS year, you are the one that's actually like teaching their AS classes. You're writing the syllabus, you're developing their tests, giving them their assignments. So that's what I was doing for the 100s. I was their AS class instructor. And by teaching that class where the curriculum is the very foundational basics of being an airman in the Air Force, basics of preparing to be an officer, that gave me, again, a lot of repetitions in those basics and not only teaching them, but then applying them in my responsibilities as a recruiting officer. I tried very, very hard to be prepared for my lessons. Like I mentioned previously, I didn't feel like my cadre when I was a cadet put a lot of effort into instruction. So I wanted to be better than that. I wanted to make sure that I knew the material for my cadets so that I could answer their questions. I really wanted to understand and internalize the information before teaching it to them so that they could be better at this information than I was. Now, I don't know if I actually taught them anything in order to learn, someone has to actually choose to be taught or choose to learn the information. But I definitely benefited from the deeper understanding of the basics of airmanship and being an officer. I think that's pretty universal experience when you're an instructor is you definitely have to internalize a lot of the stuff you're pushing if you're going to do it well. and. I've heard a lot of people say similar things, irrespective of the subject that they're teaching, that they get better at it, which is one of the reasons I think they're trying to emphasize it as an Air Force. We need instructors because those are the folks who have truly internalized the material. Yeah. So after my first year as an instructor in ROTC, actually, before I got to my first year, I was sent to SOS, Squadron Officer School, and then to field training in 2018. I actually spent about four months at Maxwell during this time. Reed, you were still there at OTS at the time, albeit you were on your way out. Yeah, we hung out a couple times. That was good. Yeah. Both Squadron Officer School, SOS, and Field Training merit their own episode, so I'm going to save my comments on those things for another time. What I'll say about field training right now is that it is both my favorite and least favorite thing about being an instructor in Air Force RTC. It's a favorite because it's where you get to see cadets begin to truly grow and come into their own as leaders in preparation for becoming POC and then officers in the Air Force. But it's also my least favorite because it is so demanding on you as an instructor, very similar to what you described about OTS, just the hours and the kind of things that you have to be involved in being on point all the time, never being able to have a bad day and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
glad to hear that you uh, had that experience, Colin. Yeah, I'm able to empathize with you on a small level. That's all that matters, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I really don't want to equate Air Force ROTC and field training to OTS at all. I truly believe that they're apples and oranges, and we can get into that later on as as we discuss what we think is the right path for commissioning officers. But I do feel for you on a small level and the kind of suck that you had to go through as an OTS instructor. Yeah, it's there for everybody, though. No matter where you are, there's always got to be some of that. Sure. So after SOS field training, you start transitioning into kind of your next role. Yeah, so after I came back from field training in, uh, in 2018, I, I finished out the rest of the year as the instructor, but then moved into being the operations flight commander or OFC at the beginning of 2019. The OFC is directly responsible for all PMT or practical military training within the cadet wing. So at, in this role, my goal was to streamline their processes, their meaning the, the cadets themselves and how they, they function as a cadet wing and make them sustainable beyond our tenure. One of the things that was most frustrating to me is that cadets kind of play this yo-yo game of a cadet wing staff will figure it out, but they don't pass those lessons on very well to the upcoming cadets. And so they're constantly having to resolve the same problems and they're not having this strategic mindset planning out things in the, the three to five or 10 year outlook so that what they set up is sustainable beyond their time as cadets once they've graduated and received their commissions. Isn't there some value in that though, in that learning process? Maybe, and you can enlighten me, right? But that was one thing that was hard about OTS is that every class would come in and they were, you know, I just had a class that had this all figured out and now I have to start from zero but it was the process that mattered. So they had to start from zero. If they had notes from the previous class, it would have kind of defeated their learning. Am I going down the wrong pathway on this? Or No, not necessarily. I can see what you're saying, and maybe there is some value to that. But when the types of failures that they find themselves in really have an impact on the training of the up-and-coming class, if the GMC the 100s and 200s, the freshmen and sophomores in the program are not prepared to move up into the upper class role. And that continues to downward spiral until things just kind of completely fall apart. That's where the main problem is going to be. Okay. I can get behind that. If the idea is, if this cycle is leading to failures of training, then yeah, you got to kind of knock that off. That's your job as cadre, right? To kind of make sure that, okay, that I can get behind that. That makes sense. And absolutely. Cadets are going to make mistakes and have to solve problems over and over again. And we often talk about, as cadre, giving the cadets enough rope to hang themselves with, right? So that's going to happen. We want them to fail and learn and grow from their failures in this safe environment. I mean, we call it a leadership lab for a reason, where there is no danger of mission failure to life and limb, right? Nobody's getting shot at. Nobody's going to miss their time on target. 
and national security objectives aren't going to be missed because cadets are trying to learn how to lead, right? So yes, there is going to be that latitude given to them so that they can learn these lessons. But I still think it's important that the way the structure and the program works is sustainable beyond each individual cadet wing staff and the way that the the cadet wing is organized at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. So in order to address that, I really wanted to help them become more deliberate in their planning process and try and get rid of what we call deadisms. I don't know, did you have like OTS-isms that flights or a cadet wing would develop and then feel like that was the the right way to do things because that's the way it had always been done? Absolutely. Yeah. And we also tried to minimize those things. I remember as a student, we talked about it in the episodes about OTS, but there was a manual called the OTS manual. And when I was a student, that thing was massive. And then when I went back as an instructor, it was fully a third the size, yet still accomplishing the same objectives. And if that's the kind of stuff you're trying to get after, you know, getting rid of the things that are just there because they are and aren't contributing to training, aren't value added, aren't essential for reaching the objectives, then yeah, that stuff's got to go. We got to get rid of that stuff. We need to focus on what actually matters. I mean, here are a couple of examples. First one is the tucking of shoelaces into shoes. Nowhere in any regulation that I'm aware of does it say that cadets have to tuck their shoelaces into their shoes. But apparently at Detachment 855, heads will roll within the cadet wing if a cadet is found without tucking their shoelaces into their shoes. I mean, they say that it's a safety hazard, but is it really? I mean, really? If it were really that important, we would have it written down somewhere in an AFI saying you need to tuck your shoelaces. Yeah. So, I mean, the only tie I can see there is 362903, your boot laces, right? Need to be tucked. But just extending that because, yeah, I'm not really sure that makes a whole lot of sense. Although it used to be in the OTS manual as well. So there's that. I don't know if it's still there, to be honest. I could look it up, but it used to be. Well, it's not in our regulations. <laughs> so it, it may be that somebody came from OTS and you know, that's what they did as a, as, a, as a cadet or an OTA, OTS. And then they became an ROTC instructor and they enforced it among their cadets. But my point is that the regulations as they stand right now don't require that your shoelaces be tucked. And so I want them to get away from these deadisms, the, the institutional inertia, and make sure that they are using regulations and the official way of doing things as they stand right now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I really wanted to make PMT great again. I wanted to emphasize that the mandatory practical military training that you are involved in is sufficient to, or it should be sufficient to prepare you to be an officer in the Air Force. When I was a cadet, there was way too much emphasis placed on voluntary activities like the drill team for your development as an officer. And I just found myself asking, and at the time and again now, that if those activities are so great and are the best way to develop as a future officer, why don't we make everyone do them? So if those voluntary activities 
are voluntary for a reason, we need to make sure that the type of training that we engage in for mandatory PMT is actually sufficient to prepare someone to be an officer in the Air Force, regardless of their participation in something that is completely voluntary. So this gave me another opportunity to dive deep into the regulations. Our regulation for Air Force ROTC is AFI 36-2011. There is a version of this that exists for both the Academy and OTS. I don't know if it's the same number, but we all have a regulation that governs cadet operations. And I tore into that thing. I wanted to make sure that I knew exactly what it was that our cadets were supposed to be doing in order to achieve the greatest amount of preparation and get the most value that they could out of their mandatory PMT time. And what I found in going through the regulation and what our cadets were doing for training and I, I can't say this is the case across all of the other detachments, but definitely I, this is what I feel for my program is that what we are doing for our cadets is insufficient for their development as officers. And there's a number of reasons why I feel this way. Number one, cadets are not in the military. They're not enlisted. They're not officers. They're not on orders. And so there's only so much that we can require them to do. We can't make them do any sort of training outside of the academic calendar. So we can't force them to do training on a weekend or over a holiday or any time that the university is not in session, except in a circumstance where a detachment commander can say that this particular event is mandatory, but those are very rare. In addition to that there is an extreme lack of funding for Air Force RTC detachments. And I think that lack of funding tells you how much something is valued by an organization. Right, maybe with the change in OIRSD and wanting better instructors to go to Air Force RTC, maybe that will come with additional funding to make training better for our cadets. But if you don't have the funding that you need to be effective in your training and the direction that you get from, from higher headquarters is that you can teach every objective needed to become an officer using PowerPoint, that type of environment uh, breeds complacency and isn't what I think our cadets and our future officers need to be successful in the future. And then the last thing that has convinced me that we're not doing enough for our cadets is that operational guidance is incredibly squishy. I've mentioned this before, but that squishiness contributes to this complacency that there are 145 different ways of solving problems that should be far more standardized. Yes, it is good that we have the latitude to develop solutions that work for our program, but for example, there should be one way to rank order your cadets to decide who is number one, who is number N, right? But that is not provided. Instead, it's more of like licking your finger and holding it up to the wind to decide where these cadets fall whenever we have to come up with the commander's ranking for our cadets. 
Can I challenge you a little bit on that? Please do. So I would argue just a little bit and just, you know, thought experiment here. I'm not in this world, so I don't know how it works, but it seems like this is a little bit of centralized control, decentralized execution. You guys are given some mission type orders. These are the standards you have to meet. How you get there is up to you. Isn't that exactly the kind of people and the kind of uh, environment we want to develop and the way we train our people? It's fair. But it makes me think about what you said in your OTS deep dive that our students not only deserve the best training that they can get, but they also deserve the same. That the training that a cadet gets at Detachment 855 here in Utah should be the same as the training that a cadet gets at Detachment 1 in Anchorage, Alaska is the same as the training that a cadet gets at the Air Force Academy is the same as a cadet gets at officer training school. It should all be the same. And it's not. Yeah, you're right. I do think different audiences, different objectives, right? The detachment at Berkeley is going to recruit a different person than the detachment in Mobile, Alabama. And I think that's good. And I think you need some of that flexibility. At the same time, though, I do agree. And maybe I should add some clarification or not caveats, but some context to that statement, right? I don't want the students in my squadron at OTS to have a different training experience just based on the crapshoot of what flight commander they got assigned to. But yeah, I can see you trying to apply that more broadly. And I think there's some merit to exploring that idea. Yeah. I don't have all the answers on that for sure. It's just the way that I feel based on my experiences in trying to help my cadets develop as future officers. And that's totally valid. So at the same time as being the operations flight commander or OFC, I was also the AS200 instructor, which also enabled me to be the FTP or field training preparation staff advisor. So overseeing our FTP program. I really want my 200s to succeed at field training. I want them to perform well in that environment. But at the same time, I want them to realize that field training is not that hard. It is not the end-all be-all of Air Force ROTC. That there is more to come and that they need to continue to develop as officers well beyond their time at field training and ROTC as a whole. More importantly than their success at field training, I want them to relinquish the individual and learn to focus on others. I want them to work toward becoming a single unit rather than a group of individuals, but one cohesive team that is going to be successful in any environment that they find themselves in. I want my cadets to prepare to be leaders focused on the mission and capable of taking care of their people, doing the things that we have described previously about what the Air Force values, executing the mission, leading airmen, managing resources, and improving the unit. And truly nothing chaps me more than watching a cadet just stand there and do nothing while another cadet is failing. It drives me absolutely crazy. In fact, has led to certain choice expletives being said to my cadets and leading me toward sore repentance. (laughs) I was going to say, you got to 
keep that facade. You got to keep that character there. Yeah, I definitely lost it one time and kind of shocked my cadets with my use of language that I won't repeat here. But I quickly owned my mistake, let my leadership know what happened so that when the report inevitably came in, and it did, about what I said, they already knew about it. But that happened because I care so deeply about their development. I want them to be better than me. And at the time, their performance was failing and it made me so angry. Yeah, it happens to everybody. So I want to outline here some of the other positions that officers can fill in Air Force ROTC. I've given you my experience, but there are other things that officers can get involved in if they are going to be instructors in Air Force ROTC. First of all is the detachment commander who is typically going to be in 05, but there are also 20 or so large detachments that have an 06 commander. So if you're going to be in Air Force ROTC, you can expect that your commander is going to be an 05 or an 06. And that's actually a really awesome thing because especially if you can be at a detachment with an 06, because usually colonels are going to be at a group or a wing command type of position, unless you're working at the Pentagon or other major command staff. You don't usually get to work so closely with an 06 in the operational air force, but in one of these instructor assignments, they're in it with you. They're an instructor. They're pulling extra duties just like everybody else's. And you get to get that senior officer mentorship on a regular basis. Other positions that officers will fill are like the director of operations, managing the day-to-day operations of the detachment and cadre. The OFC, the operations flight commander and the recruiting officer are typically going to be filled by CGOs, as well as the education officer, who is responsible for managing curriculum for the cadets and doing testing for like the AFOQT and the test of basic aviation skills or TBAS. Depending on the size of the detachment and the authorized manpower there, as well as factoring in things like the timing of the PCS cycle, it is common for an officer to hold multiple positions to be both the recruiting officer and the education officer at the same time, or the director of operations and the operations flight commander. So if you're going to be in Air Force ROTC, don't be surprised if you hold multiple duties rather than a single position like you would in the operational Air Force. And on top of that, there are tons of special duties that have to be taken care of uh, within the detachment that are normally done by a large group of people within a squadron, but that now have to be done by a small number of cadre at the debt. These are things like the self-assessment program, the safety program, being the GPC cardholder, managing the uniform inventory, those kinds of things, et cetera, et cetera. So Air Force RTC is very busy. Kind of like what you described for OTS and it not being the take a knee kind of assignment that one might expect within Air Force ROTC, you're going to be very busy all the time. On top of the official duties uh, that are assigned to you, you can also get involved with the auxiliary activities that cadets run, like the Honor Guard and Arnold Air Society. 
I chose to be involved with our honor guard, given my academic interest and personal experience with military drill and the base honor guard. And so I tried to mentor those cadets to pursue a structure, a function, and a, a style within the honor guard that's much more like the Air Force honor guard, like the one that's uh, back in D.C. And like I've emphasized the use of the regulation for all of my other positions, I did the same with the honor guard. I wanted them to dive deep into the regulation that governs the Air Force Honor Guard, which is AFMAN 34515. This is not the same as AFMAN 362203 that talks about drill and ceremonies for the rest of the Air Force. Rather, this one gets far more in-depth and in detail on how to perform ceremonial drill. Additionally, I wanted to deepen my cadets' understanding and appreciation of military drill by giving them lectures from my PhD research and giving them assignments on various readings to help them better understand why it is that the Air Force does drill and what it should mean to them. And that's something that we can get into on another episode about the importance of drill and uh, what it means for the Air Force. So that covers the positions that officers can fill, the type of things that they can expect to be involved with as instructors in Air Force ROTC. But I want to spend the remainder of our episode today talking about the cadre to cadet and cadet to cadre relationship. First of all, everybody at the detachment, both cadre and cadet, signs an agreement every year that they will refrain from unprofessional relationships, which is fully outlined and defined within AFI 362909. This is the same AFI that talks about the recruiter to trainee relationship, as well as instructors at basic training to new recruits. So the idea being here that under no circumstance should a cadre member, officer, or enlisted pursue a romantic or other than strictly professional relationship with a cadet. We signed the same documents and all of our cadets signed this exact same agreement every class. Yeah, it's really important because we want to make sure that every cadre member, every cadet understands the seriousness of this issue. Any offense against that agreement is actually punishable under UCMJ Article 92, failure to obey a lawful order. But more important than that, we want to make sure that our training environments remain professional and that our cadets and our cadre members feel safe while they are working together toward that common goal of becoming officers in the Air Force. So on that note, cadre are there to provide safety oversight. Yes, they are instructors. Yes, they provide training, but they need to be in a position at all times to be able to call, knock it off if something is not going right or to limit the type of activities that cadets want to get involved with. No cadet should ever feel like they are unsafe because of a training activity or relationship with another cadre member or cadet. Quick question. 
can you guys be Facebook friends or any other social media contacts with your students? No, we cannot. Okay. So same policy for us at OTS and that actually per DOD instruction carries on for at least one calendar year after they've left Air Education and Training Command. That's correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's good for both instructors, potential future instructors, as well as students to keep that in mind that while maybe the rest of society does not see that relationship, you know, being Facebook friends as an example, to be something of significance, when you're in a position of authority and a position of actual real legal power over someone, the DOD views that as trending towards unprofessional relationship and enough so that it's actually outlined as something we we have to avoid. Right, exactly. Now, if a cadet finds themselves in what they feel is an unsafe or compromising type of situation or relationship, ideally, they should be able to bring that up to their cadre or detachment commander. But I'll be honest, sometimes their cadre or their detachment commander is the source of the issue. Or if they don't feel comfortable bringing the issue up to their cadre or or commander for any reason, they always have access to the inspector general. Reed, can you explain what an inspector general is and what they do? My understanding of the inspector general is that they are part of the Air Force. We'll, We'll use that as an example. And they are an objective third party to adjudicate any complaints or issues that are brought up internally. So they are the formal function to lodge and investigate complaints of all types, whether it's financial, whether it's a personnel issue, whether it's a relationship issue, but anything that any individual feels is not being handled appropriately and they, for whatever reason, do not feel that they can bring that up through the normal chain of command structure, the IG is there as a outlet for both parties to to bring about resolution. Yeah, thanks, Reed. And because they are that formal position that is able to investigate any sort of complaint, we are actually going to provide contact info for the home center inspector general that provides oversight and does investigations for both OTS and Air Force ROTC. Now, if you are outside of the home center, either at the academy or maybe you're an officer in some other organization, you can still bring your complaints to this IG and they'll connect you to the right IG office. Or you can find your local IG through your organization's website or the Air Force portal. The important thing here is we want our audience to know and all the cadets that are involved in training that if they ever feel like they need to report something and they can't bring it up to their cadre or commanders, there is a way for them to get their issues resolved. Now, beyond those two major things, professional relationships and safety, I want to talk about a couple more things that deal with the cadre and cadet relationship. You know, our cadets don't like being left out in the dark. They are going to find a way to get the information that and answers to their questions, whether that information is accurate or not. Now, 
I'm specifically pointing toward Reddit right now and all of the rumors that fly around there. It's not necessarily a bad thing that cadets are networking and talking across detachments, but the information that they share there is not always correct. Unfortunately, cadre don't always have the answers or the official information that the cadets are looking for. But even if they do, cadets don't always ask their cadre for those answers, which leads me to my next point. So every cadre member will carry some sort of reputation among their cadets. Some will be known as the nice or even the scary one. Others will be known as the one who doesn't care or one who cares a lot. Others are the one who's never around, etc. So as an instructor, you need to be aware of how, when, and where you are showing up with your cadets because they are always watching. Now, that's a difficult position to be in, and it goes back to what you've talked about before, Reed, about always having to be on point. But we as instructors need to be deliberate and intentional about how it is that we are presenting ourselves when we are interacting with our cadets. So why do I share all of this, Reed? I've touched on this already, but I felt that my cadre were not particularly interested in my development. Now, I was watching, I was paying attention to what they were doing, and though they were present at, in my lecture class, in my AS class, and in leadership lab, I can't remember anything particularly useful that they taught me. Now, certainly part of this is my own fault. As I've mentioned before, I didn't make Air Force RTC the the priority that it probably should have been, but certainly they owned it as well. And they were a product of the environment at the time. ROTC was not a valued assignment and therefore did not attract the best officers for, for those instructor positions. But that all combined to develop me or not develop me as the officer that I eventually became when on active duty. I also share this because I know that I carry a reputation among my cadets for being the hard or the scary one. And definitely part of that is a facade that I put up for the benefit of my 200s as they are preparing to go to field training, trying to toughen them up a little bit. But the other part of it is that I want all of my cadets to feel like I care a lot about their development and their eventual success as officers in the Air Force. I care deeply about the mission of the Air Force and the people that are tasked to carry it out. My cadets are eventually going to receive their commissions and they're going to be in charge of these people that I care about. Remember what I was saying about missing my tribe, missing my brothers and sisters at arms? My cadets are going to be in charge of those people. And I want them to be prepared for that. That was something I always, always emphasized in my Flight Commander Welcome, that you are going to be put in charge of people I care about deeply. Yeah, we're on the same page on that. You know, that was a big part of how I looked at this responsibility as being their instructor and trainer. I'm going to put these folks in charge of people I love, uh, care about deeply. And so I want them to succeed because the people I love and care about deserve it. 
so on that note, I want them to be better than me. I want them to be, I want them to love those airmen and care about them more than I do. I want them to be better prepared for active duty than I was. It's not that I showed up on active duty and I uh, was a, a smash bag of donuts to borrow one of your phrases. Which I stole from someone else, but I'll own it. Yeah, it's great. Great comment. Great visual, right? Right. It, so it's not that I was uh, completely terrible, but I certainly wasn't as prepared as I could have been. I wasn't as prepared to contribute to the mission and lead those airmen as I could have been. And so I ask and expect a lot from my cadets because I truly believe in the saying, we don't rise to the level of our expectations, but we fall to the level of our training. So as much as our cadets may want to be the best officer out there to get stratted number one on every OPR to make 06, 07 and, and above, None of that is going to happen purely based on motivation, but is going to be a product of the training that people like me and you in instructor positions provide to those cadets. And so I feel this deeply, the importance of providing them not only the training, but an example of professionalism and, and seriousness that they need to carry over into their time on active duty. Yeah, couldn't agree more. This is serious business and it matters. I often got a lot of feedback. I always ask at the end of the class, how I did, what could I have done better? Definitely had a lot of that similar idea. You're the hard and the scary one. Or we wish you were a little closer, but I wasn't there to be their friend. And I told them that. I'm like, hey, if we run into each other in the future, that's a different thing. But in this environment, I'm not here to be your friend. And maybe I could have been a little bit more accessible We've all had leaders that we've worked for that seem aloof or far off. And, and so all stuff I, I still think about to this day. But yeah, I, the training must be good because the future and our airmen deserve it. Absolutely. The last thing that I'm going to say here is just some advice for current and future cadre in Air Force ROTC. But I also think that some of these things can apply elsewhere in OTS or SOS, or really just officership in general. But the first thing is, because you are an instructor at a university, I think you should take advantage of being at a university. You know, take some classes so that you can in improve yourself, be continually learning, working towards being a better officer. And depending on the university and their, their policy, you may even qualify for tuition benefits for you and your family. Take advantage of that free and high quality education is definitely a good thing. And along those lines, you should get involved with the university. You should learn to navigate the higher education system. Things like curriculum development, test writing, research, internships, all of these things so that you can lead to some improvements within your unit. But most importantly, be in a better position to advise your cadets. Because they may come to you with an issue and because you now understand how the higher education system works better, you can point them to resources they maybe didn't know were available to them. And who knows? Maybe you're like me and you're eyeing a future career in higher education and some of those things can lead to employment after 
you're done in Air Force ROTC or later on when you get out of the Air Force post-retirement or some other assignments. I highly recommend that cadre steal themselves against the squishy nature of Air Force ROTC. Touched on, the, on that a little bit. And one of the best things that you can do to help with that is to communicate with other detachments. Get involved in Tiger teams that help to improve the enterprise. Be part of the discussions that happen on Facebook or in other group chat environments. And hold higher headquarters to the fire. I mean, ask for clarification. Make sure that they are providing you the, the guidance that, that you need so that you can limit some of that squishiness as it seeps down into your detachment. However, when you don't get the guidance that you need because it doesn't exist or somebody won't provide it, make sure that you're acting in the best interest of the Air Force as well as your cadets and in that order. You are a gatekeeper for the Air Force. It is your responsibility to only let people into the Air Force that are going to allow it to accomplish the mission and are going to take care of its airmen. But at the same time, you have a responsibility toward those cadets, making sure that they are getting the information that they need and the training that is going to set them up for success. Last and most importantly, be present and involved with your cadets. But at the same time, make sure that you are being professional, firm, and transparent because your cadets deserve it. I think that advice can be applied to almost any leadership situation you find yourself in. Be present, be professional, be firm, and transparent. I think that's some words to live by. Yeah, thanks, Reed. Absolutely. Well, Colin, thanks so much for that really great rundown of your time at Afrazi. Excited to see what the future holds. I know I'm sure you'll update our audience as we kind of hear what shakes out. But I think that kind of covers it for this week. Any last words you want to cover before we move out? The last thing that I want to say is just reemphasizing the invitation from last week that people find out about Air Force ROTC because someone shares it with them. Someone talks to them about it. We've now recorded these two episodes that go very much in depth into the nitty gritty details of being a cadet and an instructor in ROTC, but we're just putting this up on the internet and nobody's going to listen to it or benefit from it unless it gets shared. So I invite you to share this information with your network, your friends, your family, the potential cadets in high school, the freshmen in college, and as well as anybody that you know that's an officer in the Air Force that might be interested in being an instructor for Air Force ROTC. Make sure that they get this information so that they can benefit from it. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. Really appreciate it. And thank you again to our audience for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. 
The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.